Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Matt Mason, Nebraska's state poet. Matt Mason is the Nebraska state poet and executive director of the Nebraska Writers Collective. He runs poetry programming for the State Department, working in Nepal, Romania, Botswana, and Belarus. Mason is the recipient of a Pushcart Prize for his poem, Notes for My Daughter Against Chasing Storms, and his work can be found in numerous magazines and anthologies, including Ted Kuzer's American Life in Poetry. The author of Things We Don't Know We Don't Know, published by the Backwaters Press in 2006, and The Baby That Ate Cincinnati, published by the Stephen F. Austin University Press in 2013, Matt is based out of Omaha with his wife, the poet, Sarah McKinstry-Brown, and his two daughters. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. This might seem basic for you, given that you are the Nebraska State Poet, but could you tell us what poems are, and perhaps describe them a little bit in, in their context, the historical and, and otherwise? Yeah, I kind of like uh, an old definition I heard Bill Clefcorn, uh, a former state poet, use where he said a poem is an attitude looking for something solid to sit down on. You know, a poem is a feeling or emotion just looking for the right words so that people can connect with it. And, you know, that may sound a little out there, but I mean, ultimately, all that is is a... You know, it's a story. It's a history. It's uh, it's a feeling. Uh, it's uh, any of those that you're trying to transmit. Poems. I mean, poems themselves. I, I think people get a little, you know, feel that they don't know what poems are. They're uncomfortable with them, uh, mostly because I, I think, to a certain extent, poetry is taught as something that's smarter than us. Uh, that we have to figure out um, and have, you know, like a PhD student rather than just enjoy it. And I love, um, I love poems that you hear once and you enjoy something in it, you know, the, the feeling, the attitude, a joke in it, whatever. Um, and I think that's, that's the kind of thing that carries poetry. And there's a reason poetry has been part of every culture on the planet pretty much since cultures started. So for thousands of years, and it's, you know, it along with visual art and song are kind of the mainstays, well, and eating and things like that. I want to ask why you were honored with the position as Nebraska State Poet. And also, I want to ask why you accepted it. Well, I... I... You know, I would say I was honored by uh, being chosen by the Nebraska Arts Council, Humanities Nebraska, the Nebraska Library Commission, and they put together a panel of experts that interviewed us all and reviewed uh, various applications. And, uh, you know, I, I think they chose me just because, you know, I'm originally from Omaha. I moved back in the 90s and ever since have been working with poetry, running poetry readings, helping other people find poetry readings. Now I run a nonprofit that uh, works statewide. I've done a lot of work for the Arts Council teaching poetry. It's kind of been my life work, but also I've done well with publishing um, with a couple books out, a Pushcart Prize uh, and you know various awards uh, from my poetry. Yeah, I, I I guess they they thought it was kind of time to give me you know, like a, it's kind of a lifetime achievement award or or something like that. Um, and I, I accepted it because I you know, it helps me do the work I love doing. I had been doing a lot of work in classrooms and communities for years, but as I run the nonprofit, I I've been busier and busier doing the behind the scenes work with spreadsheets and email and less. You know, sending other wonderful poets out into classrooms. Um, but I really want to get back out there. So this, this gives me the excuse and, um, kind of lights a fire for the nonprofit to figure out how we can make that happen more. So, uh, it's a bit selfish, but I just want to get out and do more poetry readings. So spreadsheets don't fall within that classification of poetry and poems. You know, I'm sure they can. Um, uh, not in mine, though. So you know, I've seen some interesting things in poetry, and I think somebody could do some good stuff, but uh, it's it's not my forte. 
So we'll consider that then a challenge from Nebraska State Poet. Um, sure. We want to see spreadsheet poems. Yes, please. Spreadsheet poems, send them in uh, to Stuart. No. <laughs> so what do you do as Nebraska State Poet? Yeah, as Nebraska State Poet, um, it's you propose a, uh, a project that you'll work on. My project is to try to bring poetry uh, into as many communities as possible in the state of Nebraska. It's a five-year term. My goal is to hit all 93 counties. Um, but, you know, that's, that's a lot of counties, even in five years, especially because I also want to hit, you know, all 90. There, how many communities are there in Douglas County or Lancaster County? So I really want to not just limit it to the counties, but you know, get to the Air Force Base, uh, reservations, uh, all kinds of different parts of communities, and not just do my own work, but um, my goal is to get into different communities and bring, you know, one of uh, one of the local poets out too. Because uh, one thing I've seen in poetry is there's a lot, I go into a small towns all over, and there'll be a somebody there with a chapbook of poems that they'll bring up to me, and other people don't know this person as, and I think, be, stay, the title, uh, an event with a state poet has, you know, maybe a little bit more press accessibility and a little bit more reach. And maybe uh, if I can bring a little light to the other poets in Nebraska, that'd be, you know, fantastic. So you mentioned it's a five-year term. How do you feel the culture of Nebraska might look different? Uh, we're recording now at the beginning of 2019. So mm -hmm. how do you think the culture in Nebraska might look different at the beginning of 2024? Well, I, I think it will be much more receptive to poetry and writing more poetry and uh, more interested in poets. Uh, I expect to have at least three or four in the state legislature, hopefully the governorship. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, those are the low goals. It could be even better. So, Does Governor Ricketts write poetry? I can't imagine that he does. It is possible. But, you know, I think not that politics is a gauge of if you write poetry or not, but traditionally poetry is a little bit more uh, more something of the left. I just remember back when the, in the Bush administration in the Iraq war, when Sam Hamill started this whole movement called Poets Against the War, where poets were putting together packets of poems to bring to legislatures and to the president. And, you know, he started this movement that just got thousands and thousands of poems from award-winning poets around the country and around the globe. And then a counter movement started of poets for the war and they had a website and, you know, it seemed like it was about 10 people writing, um, not the greatest poems, uh, kind of very, you know, easy rhymes and, uh, yeah. So, you know, I'm sure there are some wonderful right-wing poets, but I can't, well, Ezra Pound, I don't know if he was entirely right-wing, but he was a Nazi sympathizer, so I guess we can give them him. So, I'd like to intersperse some of our chit-chat with some readings, if that's okay. Sure, sure. And uh, so if you're good with that, I'd love to invite you to read anything that you choose to read for us. Okay. Um, I actually want to read a poem by Sarah McKinstry Brown. Um, she is my wife, and so full disclosure, but she's also probably my favorite poet, um, as I think her work is fantastic. And, you know, I may be the state poet, but I am not the best poet in my house. So... Yeah. Um, but she's got a brand new book out, so it's been definitely complicated because I was named state poet two months ago. Her book came out two months ago, and you know she already had a book tour set up. And so life is chaotic in the Mason household because uh, she's constantly leaving town. I'm constantly leaving town. So I want to read a poem of hers. This is the, this is the first poem from her new book, uh, which is called – the book is called This Bright Darkness. The poem's called Chorus. After 13 months of searching, the girl's body is found five miles from our house. Nights we sat down to dinner, interlaced our fingers and recited the Lord's Prayer. She was there, taking root, a seed with his seed inside her. 
abandoned by the sun, lost in the thick woods of some man's fever, we can't stop looking at our daughters. And when the girl's mother appears on the evening news, distraught, but grateful for a body, we understand. From the deep well of our wombs, we draw our daughters up, bring them to our breast, quench a thirst they didn't know they had, saddle them with hunger so they might stay. Let it not be his hands that claimed her. Let it be the tender dirt, the earth slowly awakening to her body as it softens in the sun, preparing her, each pearl of larva working to ease the burden to release her from the body that caught his gaze. Thank you for starting us with a poem of lightness. And <laughs> yes. But I guess it speaks right to the... Yeah the potential for the form or the medium of poetry to address issues and content that are really deeply challenging. Yeah. And yeah. so the idea that poetry somehow is this ethereal and maybe elitist media of expression is really very, very far from the truth. Yo, oh, definitely. You know, uh, poems can be about Cheetos, about, you know, the... Uh, the trash day it can be about uh, the things that happen in our neighborhood um it can be the things that happen to us or that we read in the newspaper um anything can end up uh, being a poem uh it's just you know a poem comes from those things that strike us that make us kind of visual that, that make us physically respond you know you read this thing and you retract or you go uh uh, or you see something and you have to take a double take, uh, you know, at the beauty of a tree with flowers in it or, or, you know, whatever it is that kind of makes you physically respond that normally we forget a few minutes later because we go on with our day. But if you're looking for something to write a poem about, that event, that small thing is, you know, it's full of emotion and uh, feeling and attitudes or whatever. And it could be a poem. Would you like to read another Sure. Okay. Here, here's a, one of mine. Uh, it's called Rapture. Is the best song by Blondie. It makes you feel like there's no other choice but to raise your arms up and shake your feet. Even the Man from Mars eating cars disco rap weird bits. All of it. Debbie Harry's voice swoons to a command. The piper playing to the wicker basket of cobras and inhibitions be damned. Though, when you hear it in a Chipotle in your 40s, seated across from your nine-year-old daughter, you realize there are limitations to enchantments, to how much you can get away with shaking. That once you could let it all go and who would care, could carpe all the damn DM you dare, and in this chain burrito experience, in this age of graying hair, this rapture where while gravity holds you tight to your chair all around you others are lifted one by one into the air just because I'm sure for many people, the song, of course, comes to mind. And, and mm -hmm. then, of course, my own experiences of uh, enjoying 
Blondie and sitting with my cousin and singing along to the lyrics of uh, her album Parallel Lines. Yeah. And so all of that is kind of coming back, but it's also emerging in your own interpretation of, of this moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those moments that play. Like I said, those moments that make you physically react, that was a, was happening. I'm sitting in Chipotle with my daughter and, you know, the song comes on and I'm bopping, I'm enjoying it. And then I just realize what's, you know, <laughs> it's just one of those moments that stopped me. It just made you buy extra avocado for your <laughs> Chipotle. Potentially, potentially. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> How are people responding to you? So th this is the first couple of months of you officially assuming this mantle of this you know, prestigious role. And yeah. so you are now moving out and about in community uh, with this specific, you know, this, this specific honor. And so how have people been receiving you so far? Well, you know, it's really been interesting. It is something where... I, I normally, you know, I, I like doing poetry, but not b having too much emphasis on myself. I like working with others and, and, and that. So it is interesting though now to have a title, which is fairly important. Um, uh, probably the oddest one was just a few days ago. I was at a reading by Irish poet Desmond Egan, who comes to town once a year, does a reading around St. Patrick's Day. And he's a wonderful old, older Irish poets, many books out. And, uh, you know, we chat a little before his reading. I was introduced to him as the state poet. And he was like, oh, that's wonderful. And then he goes up to read and it's like, and I am, you know, honored uh, by to have uh, state poet Matt Mason here in our presence. And I'm just not used to being called out by this, you know, austere Irish poet, uh, as you know, I'm just, I, I, you know, I'm just some guy, but, um, it is interesting. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's wonderful. You know, I, I think poetry itself is important and, but poets learn to live, uh, you know, to accept the thanklessness of it. And suddenly I'm getting thanked by everyone. So it's, uh, it's a different world. So the um, car parking space that's reserved for you and other perks aren't, aren't the only? Benefit. No, yeah. There's the parking, the free burritos, um, all of that. Uh, so <laughs> Every now and again, I feel as if there's an assumption that because you are doing this kind of work, that it should have some kind of educational component to it. Mm. And I think that's an adult way of saying the kids should be learning stuff and doing something creative. Yeah. But, but no, I, I don't want to do it. I don't want to get involved with that. I don't need to learn this. I'm too busy with my spreadsheet. <laughs> so ignoring the kids for a moment, how do you see your role in terms of bringing poetry to a more adult audience? Oh, I, I just think that I mean, really, the way I approach poetry is for any audience. I, I just want to make it more interesting and accessible than they, uh, than most of them have been taught to. It is, you know, I want to be able to go into a room and read poems that make people laugh, that uh, that people understand what's going on, and I'm hoping that they will admire the beauty of the language and all that. But ultimately, I want them to leave uh feeling you know entertained uh and i that's really the education i want to get across is that 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 is poetry that i think we're kind of taught uh, sometimes that poetry is not to be understood uh unless you are a book reviewer or a phd student and then you can unlock the secrets um and and, and i don't see that at all i i i want really uh, poems to interest and educate me. And, and I have nothing wrong with very complicated poems. Uh, you know, I will read them too, but just because, uh, you know, aspects of them are going to interest me. Um, but th that's not for everyone. And I, I think uh, that's a good thing. Um, there are different genres of poetry, just like there are different genres of music. We just tend to lump poetry into one genre for the most part. And it's like, if we don't like T.S. Eliot, then clearly we do not like poetry. 
And no, <laughs> you don't like T.S. Eliot. Okay, awesome. Try some Denise Duhamel. Uh, try some Zadika Poindexter. <laughs> Do something different. I maybe, like many people, was introduced to poetry unwillingly as a school student. Sure. And so sure. it's just part of the curriculum. And, yeah. And then you either fall in love with it or possibly more likely you fall in love with something particular yeah. and, and not all of it. But maybe I am also like many people when poetry just then departed my life. And it wasn't until I was 30 that I was reintroduced to it again. Even now, now that I'm 50, I wouldn't say that I'm an avid poetry reader, but I'm continually surprised that there are poems that I come across that have existed for years. And I discover them newly for myself. Yeah. And, and I'm just amazed that this didn't exist in my life beforehand. But there was that period of time between my teenage student days and then perhaps being mature enough to say, poetry is okay. It, it's for everybody. And <laughs> yeah. you can go discover. Yeah. It, it's, and I think that's the case for a lot of people. I think we, we just need the right access point to poetry. And unfortunately, the way education usually handles poetry isn't the right access point for most people. For some, yes, uh, but definitely not for everyone. Because when I was in high school, I hated poetry. Um, but it, for some reason, I started writing it because it ended up being a good release uh, for me as I dealt with high school. Um, and so that led me in college to take some poetry classes I may not have taken otherwise. And, you know, at one point I had the right teacher and suddenly the poetry of Robert Frost made sense to me and was the most amazing thing in the universe. And uh, it all kind of went from there. Well, that's a good segue to talk about your childhood. But before we get there, what about another reading? All right. Well, since we're talking about uh, the poems of, of our education, I'm going to read two poems, one, very short ones. Um, First one by Percy Bysshe Shelley, you know, one of those poets who's been dead for a couple hundred years. Uh, he's got a poem called Love's Philosophy that I really like, except the first two thirds of it are basically uh, him hitting on somebody and it's not very graceful. But then he ends it so beautifully. So the last four lines of this poem, Love's Philosophy, I think the rest of the poem, you know, it's fine, but it can go away. So here's from Percy Bysshe Shelley. And the sunlight clasps the earth, and the moonbeams kiss the sea. What is all this sweet work worth if thou kiss not me? It is like that. Just small, short, quick, and perfect. It's like the rest of the poem just sets that up, and you can take the rest of the poem away. Um, and then this poem by... Langston Hughes, who, who I just think is a, a wonderful, amazing writer. And um, it's a poem with such control because it was written, you know, by a, a, a black man in the probably in the 20s or 30s. Uh, but it just shows such, you know, the patience he wants to have with America itself. And it's just so nicely put together. So it's called I Too by Langston Hughes. I too sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes. But I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I too am America. I just love that. I think there's a lot of people who aren't ashamed yet who should be, but uh, it's a, taken a little longer than perhaps he envisioned. But I just think it's beautiful how he phrases it all. I wish I could break 
So, tell us about your childhood. <laughs> My childhood. Uh, you know, I grew up in Omaha, and, you know, it was, I like many people who grew up in Omaha, wanted to get out of Omaha because, of course, Omaha stinks. Um, and then got out of Omaha for college and realized, oh, wait a minute, Omaha was pretty good. You know, decent city in a lot of respects and wonderful people. And so I kept coming back and then leaving and then coming back. Uh, but eventually, you know, I've been back for about 25 years now. So I think I'm back for good uh, for the most part. That's kind of that's the broad the broad scope of it. <laughs> so, so what was it like for you um, in in your neighborhood with other kids? Mm. Uh, um, did you sort of have an active lifestyle, or were you a kind of bookish kid? No, I was pretty active. There were a lot of kids in our neighborhood, so we'd be out playing kick the can, uh, riding bikes, uh, all the kind of usual stuff. Um, but I also did read a lot. I, mean, I read the Lord of the Rings trilogy something like three times in middle school. Uh, a whole lot of other things. You know, read all the Tarzan books. There's like 25 of them. And there really should only be three because there's one plot line that he recycles with different characters through about 22 of the books. And the horribly racist one he wrote during World War II was kind of amazing. But, you know, uh, yeah, interesting stuff. But, yeah, I, I love, you know, mostly kind of sci-fi and, uh, you know, adventure stories and things like that. But, yeah, I, I, I read quite a bit. My parents really encouraged that. So... They made getting books easy, and so hey, end up reading. Was that part of your family environment? This leaning into literature and other forms yeah. of of culture. Yeah, definitely. Um, really, literature was big in our house. Um, you know, uh, my dad would and mom would each you know, be reading a book all the time. Um, they'd have something that they'd be reading and. Especially my dad, like, instead of watching TV most nights, it'd be just sit there with a book in his lap. So it was a, it was a good environment for reading. Uh, not so much poetry, though. I don't remember there being poetry in the house, except for, you know, kids' books of rhymy things. Of, but, uh, yeah. But yeah, I think it was a definitely a good start, uh, just with all the reading in the house. You started to allude to this a little bit, this this mm. discovery of poetry as a form of media to consume, but also a yeah. media to create for your, yourself. So, so how did this begin to emerge and develop? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it started in high school with the writing of it, where I was um, just kind of putting things down in the shape of the poems that I was reading. Uh, mostly because, you know, a, a girl didn't call me back. Uh, so there were a lot of sad poems. All the first ones were sad. And then at some point I kind of realized that you could use other emotions and uh, other stories and and make it work all right. But, you know, I mean, I, I joke about the sad poems, but it helped me get through things. It helped me process the world and uh, make sense of things because I think – uh, I'm stereotypically male in that there's kind of a wall built between my my brain and my heart, and poetry helped you know kind of build a doorway into that wall so that I would understand better. You know, I, in, in high school you know, you're freaked out and you don't know why, and you mine it a little bit by writing things down, and it's like, oh, this is what's happening. You know, hopefully by the end. So that's that's really what got me into the writing. And then I got into the reading in college. And afterwards, when I finished college, I um, wanted to keep up, you know, wanted to keep processing what poetry is because I was writing a lot more by then, really enjoying it. And um, so I would go to a bookstore. It's like, oh, this book won the National Book Award. I'm going to read it and learn from it. 
and usually I would pick up a book and hate it. Uh, I'd be reading it and I'd be bored or I'd not be interested or, you know, just wouldn't find it um, interesting to me. And started to wonder if what I was writing was poetry or what I was interested was something other than poetry. And then what kind of turned things around was I was living in Des Moines for a year at the time, working in a volunteer program. And they had their first poetry festival. And one of the readers was a reader named Galway Cannell. Uh, you know, he's a Pulitzer Prize winner, state poet of Vermont. So I figured I would hate him because that's what I was learning about poets with titles and you know, state poets, whatever. Um, so, but I still wanted to go because I'm trying to figure out what poetry is to me and in my life. And, and so I go to this reading and Cannell reads this poem you know, he reads some poems that I like. It's like, okay, I'm getting into this. He's in, you know, writes these accessible, interesting stories, beautiful language. And then he read this poem called Oatmeal, uh, which makes all these inside jokes about John Keats, who's one of my favorite poets, another dead, you know, British for a couple hundred years. Uh, but, and it was just funny and weird. And it make me, made me realize that, okay, a Pulitzer Prize winner, a state poet, and I, w- I wish I'd written that poem. That was the first time that this had hit me that, okay, what I'm writing is poetry. Um, what I'm doing is poetry. And there are poets out there that can show me more. And, you know, and I'd just been reading the wrong books. I'd just been coming across the wrong books and bad luck. But after finding Cannell, I found others, you know, found Denise Duhamel, found Ron Courtgee, found so many uh, of these amazing, uh, interesting poets and kind of realized that um, what young poets, what I was doing, thankfully, that I didn't realize I was doing is not writing poems that I've been taught that poetry is supposed to look like, but I was writing poems that I wished poems looked like, uh, what I wish poetry was. Just because, you know, uh, and and that served me well, um, fortunately. But it was really that that reading with Galway Cannell was life changing because, <laughs> uh, you know, afterwards I wrote all the poems that got me into grad school over the next two months, just plopped down poem after poem after poem. They're better than anything I'd been writing before. Um, and Cannell that night was wonderful because we're uh, walking out of the auditorium and I just happen in the, as the crowd flow goes to be right next to him as we're walking out. And I'm just so nervous. I go, I, I, I love that oatmeal poem. And then I had nothing to say. It's like my mind just went blank, but he was just a kind man. He just, uh, said, Oh, thank you. And then in the awkward silence that followed, he started asking me questions and, had a conversation with me and then uh, uh, as we're as everyone's buying books and uh, having uh, him sign them I couldn't afford a book I'm working as a volunteer so I just had a I was the only person in the book signing line with a program from the festival and so I just was nervously like I'm sorry I'm working as a volunteer so I can't afford a book but I loved it please if you could sign this I'd appreciate it and he just kind of looked at me and goes what's your name and I said, uh, it's Matt. And then he pulled out the book he'd read from, signed it, and gave me his book. So he's a good one. So with that, I think I should, if you don't mind, I want to read Oatmeal. The poem that changed my life. And it may not change all your listeners' lives, but uh, it could. You just never know. Um, and as I said, it's got a lot of inside jokes about John Keats. So if you're not up on your Keats, you should be. Because he's kind of awesome, but uh, it's all right. Uh, It's still good. Oatmeal. I eat oatmeal for breakfast. I make it on the hot plate and put skimmed milk on it. I eat it alone. I am aware it is not good to eat oatmeal alone. Its consistency is such that it is better for your mental health if somebody eats it with you. That is why I often think up an imaginary companion to have breakfast with. And at this point, like I'm in the audience, I'm like, wait, he just made a joke in a poem. Can you do that? So anyway, back to the poem. Possibly it is even worse to eat oatmeal with an imaginary companion. Nevertheless, yesterday evening, I ate my oatmeal, porridge as he called it, with John Keats. 
Keith said I was absolutely right to invite him. Due to its glutinous texture, gluey lumpishness, hint of slime, and unusual willingness to disintegrate, oatmeal must never be eaten alone. He said that, in his opinion, however, it is perfectly okay to eat it with an imaginary companion. And he himself had enjoyed memorable porridges with Edmund Spencer and John Milton. Even if eating oatmeal with an imaginary companion is not as wholesome as Keats claims, still, you can learn something from it. Yesterday morning, for instance, Keats told me about writing the Ode to a Nightingale. He had a heck of a time finishing it. Those were his words. Oyad a heck of a time, he said, more or less speaking through his porridge. He wrote it quickly on scraps of paper, which he then stuck in his pocket. But when he got home, he couldn't figure out the order of the stanzas, and he and a friend spread the papers on a table, and they made some sense of them. But he isn't sure to this day if they got it right. An entire stanza may have slipped into the lining of his jacket through a hole in the pocket. He still wonders about the occasional sense of drift between stanzas, and the way here and there a line will go into the configuration of a Moslem at prayer, then raise itself up and peer about, and then lay itself down slightly off the mark, causing the poem to move forward with God's reckless wobble. He said someone told him that later in life Wordsworth heard about the scraps of paper on the table and tried shuffling some stanzas of his own, but only made matters worse. And I love that. He's got to dig against Wordsworth in a poem. It's like, yes, go Galway Canal. Anyway, uh, I would not have known about any of this, but for my reluctance to eat oatmeal alone. When breakfast was over, John recited to Autumn. He recited it slowly, with much feeling, and he articulated the words lovingly, and his odd accent sounded sweet. He didn't offer the story of writing to Autumn. I doubt if there is much of one. But he did say the sight of a just-harvested oat field got him started on it. And two of the lines, For summer has o'er-brimmed their clammy cells, and Thou watchest the last oozings hours by hours, came to him while eating oatmeal alone. I can see him, drawing a spoon through the stuff, gazing into the glimmering furrows, muttering, and it occurs to me, maybe there is no sublime, only the shining of the amnion's tatters. For supper tonight, I'm going to have a baked potato left over from lunch. I am aware that a leftover baked potato is damp, slippery, and simultaneously gummy and crumbly. And therefore, I'm going to invite Patrick Cavanaugh to join me. So that poem changed my life. And who knows what poem's going to... I mean, that's why I say poems have a million different genres. Everyone's going to react to different poems. If you haven't had a poem change your life, you just haven't hit the right poem yet. So I guess I see that as part and parcel of your role as a uh, state poet for the next five yeah. years, is, is to not tell people what the poem that is going to change their life is, but to invite them into that exploration. Yeah, that's, that's definitely it. And that's the thing. It's kind of to unlearn the things they think they know about poetry is a big part of it. Because, um, yeah, I've, I've, you know, working with the Nebraska Writers Collective, we work in high schools and middle schools teaching poetry to kids and, and having them do the writing. And, you know, they're looking at poems differently. And it's, uh, you know, they come to us afterwards and tell us that, you know, this is changing their life, um, that that. Um, it's important to them to do this work with poetry, and they didn't realize that before. So, what is your own personal poetry creation process? Um, it's a little mixed. 
I used to, you know, I used to primarily write, you know, at midnight or after, sit down, have an idea, work on it. Now, uh, life's a little more hectic. I've got two daughters, uh, work to do and stuff. So I'm, I'm just as likely to be seated peacefully in my house writing as I am to be in a McDonald's, uh, writing something on the back of a receipt. It's, it, you know, when the time is, is when I do it. And my, my goal though, uh, my goal though is to write a poem every week or to start a poem every week. So, which is one of those things that comes from college when I had a poetry writing workshop that was 10 weeks long. And the teacher initially told us, you're going to write 10, a poem every week and turn it in on Monday night, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what? At that, because at that time I was writing poems, but I was writing a poem a month and maybe a few months before something else happened. And uh, so I didn't think I could write 10 poems in 10 weeks. And what I discovered is that when you're looking around for poems, they're there. So I wrote probably 15 poems in those 10 weeks and have kept that deadline ever since. And that was 1990. So I've written a lot of poems uh, just by keeping this weekly and by, and it's just starting them. There's more to it. There's, uh, you know, editing and typing the poems up because I write them by hand. Um, because a lot of, most of the time, the first thing I write down is okay. It's got some good ideas, but it really needs a little, a little help, a little shaping, a little massaging. Why are you writing by hand? I just, that's, that's what works for me. You know, pen and paper, um, something, something about having, you know, skin against the poem, um, I think for me, uh, is, is a huge part of the process. But then another part of the process is when you do the typing and see it on a screen, then it's a different poem. And it, it's seeing it from a different angle really helps me edit uh, effectively, I think. That makes me then wonder about all the reasons why people should not be poets. You have made a career out of being a poet. And, yeah. and clearly, this isn't the way to a smart early retirement necessarily. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> so what are the arguments that you made yourself and worse to marry a poet that, um, yeah. that life is not wasted as a poet? Oh, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's a trade. Everything's a trade off. I think riches are a trade off for something else, uh, for, cause there's something to be said for struggling. There's some, something to be said for, uh, for certain kinds of work. Um, so many of my poems and so many of my best experiences have come from, you know, weird jobs I've had to have or hold down for, for a while. Um, but I mean, when you're writing poetry, when you're writing songs, when you're painting, when you're sculpting, you are using parts of your brain that I think are enriching to us in, in ways that are remarkable. And, you know, would I rather have uh, a million dollars in the bank or be writing poems? I would rather be writing poems. Uh, I, I feel I live a better life. And um, so that's what I take. Yeah. What is it like being married to a poet? Because I'm sure that you have your own styles, right? So you're busy yes. handwriting on the back of a McDonald's receipt. Yeah. And uh, your She's wife, not. the very yeah. well-known poet, Sarah McKinstry-Brown, is going about her own process yeah. of creativity. So, so what's this like? It's different because um, we're actually we're in a, when we're starting work. We're not good reader. We're not good readers for each other. In that, I think we read. We read. We both read poetry very opinionatedly, and we don't have quite the skill of saying taking this new poem by the other and not be able to say, "Oh, you could." do this right or knowing what the other person wants from us necessarily. So we're not great readers early on, but we're, I think we're very good readers later in the process with each other. Um, but it is interesting because we are extremely different writers. She writes on the computer um, and she needs a controlled, steady environment, uh, controlling everything going on around her. Or it's very hard for her to write, which is tough when you've got two kids and a husband and, and all that. So 
Um, we go at it completely differently. Um, our, you know, you, you heard her poem at the beginning of the show and we're, we're pretty different in a lot of respects. Um, but, and I think that's a good thing. I think if we were too much alike, it'd be more difficult because now, you know, we're, we're, we can kind of look at it when we do look at each other's poems, we're looking at it from a much different poetry angle than the other one has. And I think that's helpful. So as many types of poems as there are, as many ways that they can be articulated and present themselves, and as diverse as our preferences and and personal appreciation of those poems might be, what are some of the ways that you might invite listeners to go about bringing poetry into their life? Mostly just finding the right finding the right poems you know if you're if you want to find some poems you know there there are videos on youtube by poets there are anthologies you can thumb through at a bookstore so i would suggest just you know do that and as you start into a poem if you're not catching it if you're not interested skip to the next go on to a different book go on to a different page go on to a different video um, you know, life is too short to read bad poems. Um, and by bad, I mean just poems that aren't interesting to you. They might be brilliant to somebody else, but it's, you know, letting yourself, um, be opinionated about the poems you read so that you don't spend too much time writing poems that you're not interested in or re- reading poems that you're interested in that you, you know, flip to the next, flip to the next. Cause you know, I'll pick up an anthology and, may not be interested in a lot, but there will probably be a couple poems in there that I'll love. You know, I used to run open mic poetry readings and some nights uh, it'd be, you know, poems that I'm really not feeling all night long, but there would always, always be at least one poet who would bring something that would just stop me, you know, and that's worth it. Uh, I, you know, I would kept running the, I was thinking the stage right open mic. I ran it for years just because of that, I would dread going every week, but then I would go and leave just like, oh my God, those two poems were so amazing. And that's, that's what kept it, kept it, you know, really working. So reading, listening, yes. uh, open mics or hearing other people read, yeah. even take um, someone else's poem and read it yourself and yeah. see how that feels. Yeah. And of course, creating your own poetry too, yeah. if you feel like you want to dabble with that or s- slam. Yeah, definitely. Come by a poetry reading or a poetry slam. Um, Check it out. See what it's like. Uh, Poetry slams are competitive where you use your own poems in a competition. And it's a lot of fun. You know, it's judged by the audience. There aren't experts or anything. It's uh, anything can happen. Um, But there's a lot of good things happening with poetry in this town. And you can you can find them pretty easily. There's, you know, the look in the paper or there's a website, just Google Nebraska poetry and you'll come to poetrymenu.com and other websites that list uh, where the readings are. I think it's appropriate we close with a final reading, please. All right. right. Um, I'm going to read, uh, this is my state poet poem. Um, that I wrote a- after I was uh, alerted that I, I was going to be named State Poet. And it's called, Now That You've Named Me State Poet of Nebraska, let the reign of terror commence. Let all the phones cease to open until you whisper the name of a poet into its microphone. And you can only use Poe once. Let website passwords require a symbol, a number, some uppercase, some lowercase, an I am and a trochee. By the power vested in me, by the state of Nebraska, let all mailing addresses be reconfigured in rhyming couplets. Let no text message send unless it be 17 syllables in length. Let Ted Kuzer be paid more than whoever the big football coach is. Let former state poet Twyla Hansen's pension make Warren Buffett wish he'd started with sonnets instead of paper routes. Let the weather come on all local newscasts so that the words make you feel the sun on your skin, the snow, the wind, because Felicia Webster and Neil Harrison may now take charge of National Weather Service stations from the sand hills to the river. Let this reign of terror 
commence. As we admit, we don't know what this day will bring, but we come to it together with ears unstopped, eyes aware, scribbling to find out what it all means here in the interconnectedness of truth and beauty and all varied things. Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. I've been in conversation with Matt Mason, Nebraska's state poet. Matt, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. My guest today is Matt Mason, Nebraska's poet laureate. Is it correct to say poet laureate? Is that a t- Actually, it's not. Okay. Uh, the poet laureate is John G. Nyhart. Okay. who was named Poet Laureate in perpetuity by the state legislature uh, back in the 20s. And so after he was Poet Laureate for about 50 years, then when he passed away, Bill Clefcorn became our first state poet. Okay. There you go. Well, you, Nihon. <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>